Well, again, good morning. Welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. I'm really excited to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, If you don't know me or if we haven't had the opportunity to be properly introduced, allow me to do that. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus, and I am particularly excited this morning because we are going to be continuing in a series that we began last week, this series that we've been calling More and More. Uh, And let me just start by saying, let me just give you a 20,000-foot view of what this more and more language really signals or what it's talking about. Basically, in this series, what we're talking about by using the language of more and more is we are talking about spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. Uh, What does it mean to grow in this idea of being spiritual and this connection or relationship with God? Now, specifically, we're asking God's perspective in that pursuit and kind of God's definition of how we would understand spiritual maturity and these things like spiritual growth. And then from there, to try to kind of figure out how that definition or God's perspective impacts the way that we live day to day and how we see this thing called spiritual maturity and spiritual growth. Uh, So last week, we actually introduced this series. It was our first week. And what we said there is that the language of more and more isn't just something that will be helpful to guide us through the four weeks of this series as we're going through it. We also said that the language of more and more was selected strategically by our leadership team because we really believe that that language best encapsulates the direction of our campus for the entirety of this year for 2018. So uh, many of you know, some of you don't, that we have a group of leaders here at the Medina East Campus that annually we go away at the beginning of the year and we just, we fast and we pray and we kind of seek God's heart. Where is this community supposed to go? Where's Grace Church Medina East Campus? God, where are you leading us this year? And so we arrived at this language of more and more. We want this year to be all about spiritual growth and maturity, not just obviously in 2018, but also beyond as well. <clears throat> and so here's the thing. If you missed last week's conversation, I really want to encourage you. You can pick up on that conversation. It's kind of an important groundbreaking one in this series and for our campus over the course of this year. So I'd encourage you to go to our website, medinaeast.graceohio.org, and you can check out those com- or that conversation via video or via podcast there. Okay, and so uh, let me just uh, actually kind of orient us a little bit again around this series. We said that this series is about spiritual growth. It's about spiritual maturity. But one of the things that we said last week that's gonna guide us through this series is that spiritual growth and spiritual maturity in the Bible is equated with Christ-likeness, okay? So there's this indelible link between spiritual maturity and the idea of being like Christ. And we said that being like Christ is not only just thinking the things that Jesus would think, but also living our lives and sort of outworking those thoughts into our actions in a way that Jesus would if he were living our life. Now, we also said last week that one of the important things of understanding spiritual maturity from a biblical perspective is this, that spiritual maturity is not some abstract state of spiritual perfection. It's not that. Over and over again, the Bible refers to spiritual maturity as a process, It's a more and more. It's a progressive thing. It's dynamic. There's movement and there is motion to this idea of spiritual maturity. And so much so as we thought about like kind of how to best address this or or communicate the concepts that are related to this, as silly as it sounds, we thought the illustration or the analogy of a trampoline was the best way to describe this. So when you think about a trampoline, right, the more and more of your weight that you put downward into the spring causes the energy and the power of the springs itself to be enacted such that you can soar higher and higher and leap. And then on the second revolution in this process, the higher you go, the more of your weight you are bringing down in the spring and the thing just spirals out of control until you've reached the sun or something like that. So we basically said that uh, spiritual maturity, a great way to look at that is, is, is like a trampoline. And the reason being is this, is that the more and more of our weight of who we are The more and more that we lean into Jesus and his power, that spring idea for spiritual growth. Again, the power is not our own, that our transformation, that the possibility of our transformation exists in Jesus's power to propel us and cause us to soar into heights in our relationship with God that we couldn't otherwise achieve without it. And so we also said this too, we we are also looking for kind of like a resource or a great way to personally reflect 
on some of these ideas. And so what we wanted were some uh, great ways to both evaluate kind of where we each feel like we are at or where we sense we're at in this progress or this process of spiritual maturity. But we also said we wanted, uh, we wanted to communicate that there is kind of like this invitation that Jesus gives us or extends to us to kind of onboard into this life with him of increasing more and more kind of Christ-likeness. And so here's what we did. We thought that a great evaluation tool and a great invitation tool is these more and more questions, something we're calling the more and more questions, and they were three. So again, we introduced these last week just by way of reminder and recap. Let's look at those real quick right now. The first more and more question was this, that a great way to evaluate where we're at in our spiritual growth and maturity is this question. Am I loving Jesus more and more? Am I loving Jesus more and more? Is my life increasingly leaning toward a relationship with him, leaning more of my weight into who he is and his power for transformation? Now, the second question we said was this. Am I loving who Jesus loves more and more? Now, we know over and over again in the Bible that this is not just a personal thing. This life with Jesus is not just a personal thing, that there are other people that are involved. And we know that Jesus loved people. And so as we become in increasing alignment to who he is, as we love him more and more, our heart is going to start to beat for other people, the people that he loves. And then finally, we ask this question. This culminates in, am I loving, or I'm sorry, am I living for the things that Jesus lived for more and more? In other words, are my priorities, are my resources, are my time, uh, are the things that I value in my life, are those aligning more and more to the things that Jesus valued in his life? And so what we're gonna do today is we are going to zoom in a little bit on this first question. We are gonna unpack a little bit more about what it means to ask the question, am I loving Jesus more and more? And actually, we are gonna dive right into a passage of scripture here in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. So if you brought your Bibles, now's the time to get those out, or if you have those on your tablet, phone, device, whatever, you get those electronic things out. And we're gonna dive right in to Philippians 1, 9 through 11 and try to figure out what it might mean to love Jesus more and more and what that says. I'll also say that if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. You can follow along on the screen. And there are also some Bibles under the seats in front of you. They'll be on page 818 in those Bibles. And lastly, if you don't have a Bible to call your own, like you just don't own one, just take one of those black Bibles under the seats in front of you. Just consider that a gift from us to you as a way of saying thank you for being here. All right, so here we go. We're gonna dive right in. Philippians 1, 9 through 11, and we're trying to figure out this question. What does it mean to ask, am I loving Jesus more and more? This is what the Apostle Paul says to a group of Christ followers in the Roman colony of Philippi. He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound, huh, convenient, right? More and more. It's the series. It's literally where we get the language of the series that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. All right, let me put a little bit of context around this thing. So obviously we're in Philippians 1 and we're starting in verse 9, so there are eight verses that have occurred before this. Now, one other thing you need to know, if you don't already, is that Philippians, this book, is actually a letter. And it is a letter that Paul writes to a group of Christ followers in this Roman colony of Philippi. Now, this is fascinating. The first eight verses, if you ever get a chance to read it, I would encourage you, maybe as you walk away today, go ahead and read it. It's kind of almost hilarious because like any conventional letter, in the first couple verses in this letter, uh, Paul introduces himself. He says like, hey, this is me. I know you guys. I literally planted your church but it's me, and then right about verse three and all the way through verse eight, Paul starts to say, man, I love you guys so much, and I'm praying for you constantly. I'm praying for you constantly because I genuinely want to see God at work in you. I wanna see the power of God in the person of Jesus Christ at work in your midst. But what's funny is Paul talks about how much he prays for this church, but he doesn't get around to the actual prayer until way later in verse nine. Because Paul says prior to this that he prays for them and then as he starts to think about the content of his prayers, he just starts to burst out in thanksgiving and celebration at everything that God is doing in this church. 
So much so as like Paul's like, oh man, I am so thankful for you and your partnership in the gospel. Man, we get to do this Jesus thing together. And even though I'm hundreds of miles away and in prison in Rome and you're in Philippi, man, the, the unity that we experience because the gospel is being shared, Jesus is being preached, is so phenomenal and fantastic. He just starts praising God over and over again. And then it's almost like he gets here to verse nine and he's like, oh right, yeah, the prayer. Yeah, I'm praying for you. Let let me give you some kind of indication as to what that prayer is. And that's literally what Paul is doing here. He calls it out and he says, you know, all that celebration aside, guys, this is my prayer. In other words, if nothing else, this is the thing that I go to God for you for. And what does he say? His prayer for them is that their love, he says, may abound more and more. Now this word abound is very interesting. It literally has this uh, a kind of imagery of a container that is so filled to overflowing that it spills out for the benefit of other people. So in other words, abound is you have something, you have so much of something that's so much more than sufficient that what's left over starts to bless and encourage other people. So Paul says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. And he says it's in this thing called knowledge and depth of insight. But notice verse 10. Paul starts to give us some indications of what will start to transpire in the lives of people who are genuinely loving Jesus more and more. So if our question is, am I loving Jesus more and more? Paul's like, in verse 10, so that, like he's saying, there are gonna be certain things that start to show up in your life that give you every indication that you are, in fact, loving Jesus more and more, and that that love is abounding to overflowing. And first of all, he begins with this. He says that a person that's loving Jesus more and more is going to be able to discern what is best. Now by this, Paul kind of means this. All right, so we know that when we look at the Bible, the Bible does not give us a bullet-pointed list, nor does it give us a step-by-step process of how to deal with every situation that we individually encounter in our lives. It doesn't do that. What the Bible does do is it gives us the heart of God, right? The the desires of God that apply to any given situation. And then it's up to us in our relationship with Jesus to figure out how the heart of God applies in whatever specific or nuanced situation that we're facing in life. What Paul says is if your love for Jesus is abounding more and more, you're gonna be able to do that with skill and acumen. You're gonna be able to look at every situation in life and with skill parse out what is good and what is evil, what would bring God glory and what is for our good. So Paul says one of the things that's gonna show up, you're gonna be able to discern what is best in your circumstances. Then he talks about how what's gonna show up is purity. This is the notion of less and less sin, the presence of less and less sin in life, more of a heart that does beat for God and more actions that are honorable in their intent. Paul also says that one of the fruits of loving Jesus more and more is that you're gonna be blameless. In other words, there's gonna be nobody before God that is gonna be able to stand before him and point the finger of accusation at you. You're gonna be pure and blameless. And then Paul continues, he says that you're also gonna be filled with something that he calls the fruit of righteousness. Now, most scholars believe that this phrase, fruit of righteousness, is a actually a figure of speech in the original language, and it would have indicated healthy human-to-human relationships. Healthy human-to-human relationships. So Paul's like, you're gonna know what to do in every circumstance. You're gonna be pure and sinless. You are gonna be blameless. Nobody's gonna accuse you. You're gonna live in healthy relationships, and ultimately at the end, and this is kind of the culmination of his thought, what's gonna show up in your life if you're loving Jesus more and more is the glory and the praise of God. Now this word glory, it can sound really churchy sometimes. Let me just break it down. Glory is simply the honor of someone's reputation, the honor of someone's reputation. So I think what Paul is saying here is that when Christ's followers are loving Jesus more and more, what's gonna start to happen is this. We are gonna so reflect the character and the nature of God that it will be like when we interact with other people, those people will be experiencing nothing less than the heart and the character of God. So Paul's like, man, if you're loving Jesus more and more, you got some great indicators. All this host of godly qualities is gonna start to show up in your life. So is that it? Are we done? Shall I invite the band up and close us out?
right? And listen, some of you are like, yes and amen, please. Thank you very much. Like, you got, I got a Chili's gift card. It's burning a hole in my pocket. And those Southwestern egg rolls down the street are calling my name, right? Now, right, this is what Paul's saying. He's saying that this host of godly qualities is gonna start to show up in your life if you're loving Jesus more and more. But doesn't this beg a really important question if we're really paying attention? And I think the question revolves around this word right here. It's the hinge word in this entire verse. It's this question of love. See, if, Jesus, if Paul is saying that love for Jesus is part of this catalytic act or this catalytic process that produces these qualities in our lives, the real question is, what does it mean to love Jesus? Fair? What does that kind of love look like? And guys, honestly, in, in, in the spirit of the lyrics of the one-hit wonder 90s band Hadaway, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No mo, right? <clears throat> now, this is important, right? Why? Well, not only is it a hinge in this entire passage, this is important because a single word can, and, and how we define it, can radically change the way we see everything about a given event, circumstance, or issue. You see, I think you and I, I think, I think we all know that words, our words matter, don't they? Our words matter. Our words can be used to build people up and encourage. But simultaneously, or on the flip side rather, our words can be used to cut down and they can be used to destroy. Our words can bring clarity into a situation, but our words can also bring confusion into a situation. Which, by the way, if you've ever seen the movie Inception, if you've ever seen that with Leonardo DiCaprio, it's, it's that movie where somehow in dreams, like you can plant a thought into somebody else's head. I'm like, isn't that what words for? That, that, that's, that's what words are for, right? The, my thought, words in your head, never mind. But you understand the power of words, right? Words can be used to support an argument. Words can also be used to stop that argument dead in its tracks. There is a power to words. Our words matter. But I would say this too. I, say, I would say what's of equal importance is the context in which we use the specific words that we do. What is just as important is, are the words that surround a given word if we're trying to define it. In other words, how I use a word alongside of other words will give every indication of the original word that I want to know and its definition. And now that you are 98, 98% of you are confused, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about here, ready? Okay, let's take the word flat. In isolation, by itself, flat. You're like, I know what that means. We all know what flat means. It means not round, not curved, straight, flat, compressed, maybe. Flat. But wait, watch what happens when we start to put some other words around this word and we form these little things that our first grade teachers told us were sentences. Let's try this one first. The road is flat. You're like, duh. <laughs> course. Like some of you are thinking that is literally the sentence that popped into my head when you initially populated the screen with the word flat. Okay, fair enough. Flat, we get that. It's compressed. It's straight. It's... But how about this one? Let's, let's do a word jumble. Let's put some other words around the word flat. My car has a flat. Ah. Well, now we're not talking about something that's flat or compressed and straight. Actually, we're talking about something that is round or should be. And honestly, what we're referring to is the fact that that thing does not have the appropriate amount of air in it to sustain or support the car. Different meaning, same word. How about this one? The note was flat. Well, now we're not talking about cars or roads or tires at all, are we? We're talking about something that we hear, a musical note. And I would even say there's... There's two ways that this one could go. We could be talking about a musical note or we could be talking about the kind of sticky that we write a message on. It's flat. All right, how about this last one? This is my favorite. 
let's head over to my flat. All right? So different words, totally different meaning. And in this one, what's peculiar about this one to me is that not only is there what you would call a literary context to the usage of the word flat in this sentence, meaning the, the words that surround it that help us identify its meaning, but there's also like a cultural context that lies underneath it, right? Because we live in the United States. We don't use the word flat like they do in England. Here we're not talking about a tire, music, a note, or anything. We're talking about an apartment, right? I think you get what I'm saying here. The reality is, if we are not willing to look at this word love in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, and figure out what it means in its biblical setting, right? If we can't figure out what it means in its biblical setting, we might read what Paul is trying to say very differently, and it could have dramatic implications on what we understand loving Jesus to be, okay? Because we all know that in our society and culture, we use the word love constantly, and there are so many different associations and connotations that we use to that word, such that two people can be talking about love toward each other, have two totally different definitions of what that is, and they're talking past each other and probably getting into an argument as a result. Because here's the thing, in our society, like what, what is love, right? Is love sentimentality? Right, because if love is sentimentality, and if we're plugging that definition into first, uh, first, uh, sorry, Philippians one nine through eleven, man, if love is sentimentality, meaning think of think of it as the the aww factor, right? That's sentimentality. Oh, it's so cute. Oh my goodness. Well, think about it. If that is love, that is going to dramatically influence how we see Jesus, and it's also going to dramatically influence how we think we are to love him and interact with him and what he's looking to do in our lives. If love is simply feelings, meaning if my relationship with Jesus and my love for Jesus simply exists because Jesus somehow triggers some pleasure sensor in my brain, that is going to greatly and dramatically impact who we think Jesus is and what a relationship with him and love looks like. And likewise, if we think love is simply me getting what I think I need. In other words, for some of us, myself included sometimes, it's I need the approval of other people. I need, I find my identity and my value and worth in those things. And so when someone that I know and someone that I love gives me those things, I am inclined to want to protect that and to keep them. I am inclined to want to love them because they give me what I think I need. And here's the deal. Again, going back to Philippians 1. If we're defining love in that passage by any of these things, it's going to dramatically influence the way we read it. But what if we were able to get a, get a definition of love that comes out of the biblical setting? Like we look across the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and we examine what love would mean in a variety of contexts and then plug that understanding back into Philippians 1, 9 through 11. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna start, we're gonna start this way. We're gonna attempt to do that. Now, here, here's the problem. Uh, obviously, we, we don't have the time nor the capacity here in a service like this to comb the depths of the Bible's teaching of love, right? But here's what we can do. We can begin this way. Um, the Bible often, like if you were going to go to a, uh, a Bible dictionary or what some scholars call lexicon, you would discover that the word that is used here in Philippians 1 for love is this Greek word that lies behind it. Some of you may have heard of this before. It's this Greek word called agape, all right, agape. Now, if you were going to go to that Bible dictionary and you were going to look up its definition to try to figure out what it means in Philippians 1, you would probably get something very short and succinct, something like this, Okay you would get that agape is unconditional love, right? So unconditional love, meaning there is no act that was done to me prior to me doing some act of love. And likewise, I don't expect an act to be done in return or in reciprocation to me as an act of love. It is simply unconditional. Now, I do find that that is a very helpful way of understanding how the Bible overall, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, thinks about this word agape. Now, but here's the thing. 
I don't think that this simple definition really does justice to the depth and the profundity, like how profound and deep and potentially, guys, how how provocative and scandalous this word actually is, again, in its biblical setting. And again, since we won't have the time here today to comb all the Bible's teaching on love, as as a matter of fact, uh, the word agape as a verb appears 426 times in the whole Bible. And as a noun, it appears an additional 135 times. What we can't do is comb the entire depths of Scripture to figure out what it could mean in this context. And so what we're going to need to do is find one verse or one passage that best encapsulates or gives us an understanding of that entire biblical view of love. And actually, based on some study that I've done, I actually think I've found what I believe to be one verse, one simple verse, that best encapsulates the entire view of the Bible on love. And I've got some good news for you here today because many of you already know this and some of you, some of you could quote this verse in your sleep. It is that often quoted verse, John 3, 16, all right? So John 3, 16. So humor me for a moment. Let's dive into this passage together. Let's see what it says about love and then potentially plug that definition back into Philippians 1, 9, all right? So many of you know it, just humor me. This is what it says. It says, for God so loved the world. Now this word loved here is agape. So God agape the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. All right, so God so agape the world that he gave his one and only son. Now again, what we're after here is this big, broad understanding of how the Bible views agape love. But actually, I think in this verse, what we need to do to get to that big definition of love is we actually need to go real small. And real small is this tiny little word that occurs before the word love is so, all right? So normally when we read this, we'll read it like God so loved the world, right? Like the surfer dude in California who's like, God, I mean like so loved the world, man, right? So we'll normally refer to it as like the, it's the bigness or it's the magnitude of God's love, right? Now here's the deal. I don't wanna discount that for a second. That is absolute, like God's love is so vast and big and it's magnitude, like it it knows no boundaries, it knows no end. We will forever plumb the depths of God's love. That is not an incorrect teaching, biblically speaking, but it actually isn't what is happening in this passage. You see, the word so here, back in the original language, it probably should be better translated as the word thus, or maybe the phrase, this is the way. So, like so, in this way, such that the New English translation of John 3.16, I think really draws the significance and the impact of reading this verse in a different way with this idea of thus, or this is the way in place of so, The New English translation says this. This is the way. Right here. This is the way God loved the world. If we were asking John across the table, how did God love or what does love look like? John would say, this is it. Pay attention. Right here. Unequivocally. The most perfect expression of love right here. He gave He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Love right here. God gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have eternal life. When we start to read this verse, the simple little verse that we've heard so often in this way, some things change. And I think from this verse, we can get a better and more full or more robust definition of what agape love really looks like. And I would submit to you that it looks something like this or it reads something like this. That biblically speaking, agape love is the decision to be so persistently committed to the good of another 
that it will cause you to give up what you treasure most so that they can experience life. Love is not a sentiment. It's not a feeling. It's not driven by what I feel. It is a decision to be persistently, not when I feel like it or when it's convenient for me. It's persistently committed to the good of someone else that that someone else and their good would provoke me, would stir me up to hand over the thing that I value and treasure most in my life. Why? For no other reason. So that they can have life. So that they can have life. I think, again, we see this in John 3.16. We see that it is this God, this persistent God, that loves the world. Again, if you zoom out, you would see that all the way from Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible is one massive story of a God who loved human beings and created them. And yet these human beings, every single one of them, you and me included, have constantly turned our back on God, our good creator. And yet Genesis through Revelation is one epic story of a God who constantly is moving toward human beings and his desire is to be for them and bless them. God's love never runs out. God is persistent. It's not just any God. It's not some capricious God that loved the world. No, it's this persistent, intentional God who loved the world. And this God was committed to everyone, not just a handful of people that would impress him the most, as if that were even possible. This God was resolutely committed to the entirety of the human race in sending Jesus, his son. This idea of the world that appears earlier in the verse, this is, this is language that John frequently uses to describe human beings in their brokenness and in their rebellion against God. Persistent commitment, this is the God who loved and was committed to everybody. Such that, right, in that definition, it moved him so much to give up what he treasured most. He gave, it says, his one and only son. Some translations have only begotten. This is a figure of speech that simply means one of a kind, unique, not like everything else. The one son that God treasured above all, God gave his best. He gave what he treasured so that the result is that we would benefit by having the ability and the possibility of entering into this thing called eternal life, which doesn't just refer to unending life in terms of time. It refers to a quality of life that is unsurpassed and that we could not know apart from God's work in Jesus. Love is the decision to be so persistently committed to the good of another that it would cause you to give up what you treasure most so that they can have life. Now, honestly, I wish that we could camp out here for a lot longer, and we could, but here's, again, our task. We gotta get back to the main road here. Our task is now to take this understanding, this definition of love, we gotta plug it back into Philippians 1, 9. Paul says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Your love for Jesus abound more and more. Now, think about it. Our love for Jesus, for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, Paul's saying that our love for Jesus ought to be decisive. Not based on feeling or emotion. It ought to be something that we determine and resolve in our heart that we are going to pursue. Our love is to be persistent. It's not a love that should wax or wane or ebb and flow with whatever we feel that day or whether we wore yellow or red. <laughs> it's to be persistent. It's to be committed. And guess what? It is for us to give up the things that we value and treasure most so that Jesus' life can come to others 
and so that his agenda could be made known and made great and accomplished in the world. Paul is saying here that our love for Jesus ought to be in increasing equilibrium with the very love of God that was shown in the sending of his son, Jesus. Now here's the thing. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, I'm like, no, I can't. I'm not capable of that kind of love. I, I don't have it within me, right? I think about the way I love my wife. It, it is often so far from persistent it is often so far from decisive. I can't do that. I think of the way that I love my kids or my family members or my neighbors, my coworkers, the people that are in my path of life. I can't even do that. How am I supposed to love Jesus like that more and more? And then I think about, well, well, maybe if I were to just try a little harder, right? Maybe somehow I could, just even for a day, muster up enough to where I could love like that for a day. And then I think, wait a minute, that flies in the face of everything that the Bible teaches about the grace of God. The point of the grace of God is that I can't earn it. But I know that I can't do it. And I think about this story of the rich young ruler that's told in Mark chapter 10. And it's this story about how this rich guy, filthy rich guy comes to Jesus and he asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, he says, here's what you need to do. You need to sell everything you have, right, love. You need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then you, I want you to follow me. And by the way, I'm homeless. And it says, Mark 10 says, as it's telling the story, the rich young ruler walks away sad. He couldn't do it. And I'm like, I'm that guy. I'm the rich young ruler. I can't love like that. And in the aftermath, Jesus' disciples who saw this whole thing go down, they're scratching their heads and they're bantering about amongst themselves. And then they turn to Jesus and they say, man, if that guy can't make the cut, who then can be saved? As I think about some of the, uh, the frustrations that likely come into our mind when we think about, like, I can't love like that, um, it just reminds me of, of a time uh, a couple years ago uh, when my family and I were looking to relocate from uh, Parma to here in Medina. Now, we had been part of the Medina East Campus for a couple years. We'd been serving here in this community, and it was really our heart, and we believe that God was leading us in this direction. It was really our heart to be able to live in the community in which we were serving. And so here's one thing you need to know about our house in Parma. Love the house, but uh, we bought it in 2008. Um, and I think literally we signed the paperwork for the house. And the next day, it's when the real estate market took an absolute dump on everybody. And uh, so in other words, when we were looking to then buy a home in Parma and sell our, our, buy a home in Medina and sell our home in Parma in 2015, the reality is we had bought high on our home in Parma and we had to, we had to sell low. And so it was gonna be just enough for us to like recuperate what we owed in the principle of our, home in Par of our home in Parma if we were gonna be able to make it over into Medina. And uh, if I told you the story, you would just be blown away. Like by God's grace, his, his this miraculous set of circumstances, we found a buyer for our home in Parma and we found an amazing home in this awesome neighborhood uh, in Medina. And, and we had started to sign all the paperwork and, and things were going really smoothly and we just were like, yeah, this is where God's leading us and we're so excited and we're so, we're so happy about being in this community. And uh, I just remember about two weeks before everything was supposed to close and the whole deal was supposed to go down, um, I remember calling uh, those who were helping with the closing costs or who, those who were working on the closing costs and escrow and all that funky stuff. Uh, I just remember calling because I, I noticed something that seemed a little funky. And uh, basically I was on the phone. And by the way, if you are in real estate, could you please make this process a little bit easier? <laughs> it is a nightmare, right? But nevertheless, um, 
I'm on the phone with this uh, representative, and at the end of the day, they said, yeah, so uh, there were more closing costs than we thought. You're going to be out. You're going to owe $5,000. You're going to owe $5,000. And I was like, wait a minute. That doesn't seem right. And all the calculations, she sends me this electronic stat sheet. And sure enough, all the way down, all these calculations, all the way down at the bottom right-hand corner of this PDF was negative $5,000. And for some of you, $5,000, that's like pocket change. And that's okay. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. But... For my family and I at the time especially, I mean, it was catastrophic. So we, we desperately wanted to be in our community where we felt like God wanted us to be, right? And here we were faced with negative $5,000 and we just didn't have it. So we were not only faced with a debt of $5,000, we were also going to be homeless because we had already sold. Like that, the selling of the house in Parma was going, going through, it was going to It was going to happen. And I remember uh, a couple days after I had this conversation on the phone, I was uh, having breakfast with a friend. Um, he's a friend of mine from the Medinis campus. We were having breakfast together, and um, I was just sharing with him some of the frustrations of the process. Because I'm a good, red-blooded American male, there was no way I was going to let him know what my real need was. But I was just communicating my frustration. Desert, real estate, burn. Yeah. And so uh, after a while, because he's a good friend, he's just started probing me a little bit more, and he finally got out of me. Uh, what, the, what the bill was going to be. It's like, yeah, $5,000, I don't have it, and we're going to be homeless. <laughs> Every single service, <laughs> this happens. I'll never forget what he said to me, sitting across that table over eggs and sausage. <laughs> he looked me in the eye and he said, don't worry about it. We got this. Like we got you. We love you. We want you here. We know that, that what that will do for you and your family. We got this. And I just remember immediately replying again, I'm, I'm a man, so I don't need anything. Um, I remember replying, well, no, you couldn't possibly. And he just stopped me dead on my tracks. He's like, hold on. Yes, you can. Yes, you can let us do this for you. And by the way, since school's about to start, and we don't want your kids to have to go for a month in their old school system and then come into Medina and, and learn the whole system and make new friends, why don't you guys just come, your family of five, why don't you guys just come and live with us for a month so that that process can be as smooth as possible? And sure enough, a month and a half later, after a really crazy time with their family and ours under one roof for about a month, we moved into our new home. And we've been there, right, ever since, loving the community and hopefully being the hands and feet of Jesus to the people around us. Now listen, I tell you that story not just to make a grown man cry in front of everybody. I tell you that story because it's come to my mind. The first is, the radical and genuine example of Christ-like love that that family modeled for us. Guys, they, they did not, they expected nothing in return. They were getting nothing out of this whole thing. I mean, it wasn't like we signed a paper so that we could give them free babysitting for the next 30 years every Friday or something like that. Had nothing to do with it. So there's one, on one hand, it's an example of Christ-like love, but I tell you what, the thing that really gets me about their act of love and generosity is when I think about me, guys, I am now a marked man as a result of that act of giving up something for me and my family. Their act is now written in stone in the history of my house, in my history. I can't take it back. I can't erase that act. I can't do it. That what they have done has been branded into my very soul. Such that, guys, literally every time I walk across the precipice or the threshold of my house, or at like my door, and I walk into my house and I give my kids hugs coming home at the end of the day, I think about just what it took to get me there. I think about just the great generosity and love that had to be expressed as a result of that. You see, 
when it comes to me and my house, I know something now about my history, about the story of my house that causes me then to think about the way I would use that resource in radically different ways. You see, I think this is why Paul adds this little phrase that love abounding ought to be in knowledge and in depth of insight. Why? Because when you think about loving Jesus, you don't just try a little harder to do what Jesus did for you. Instead, you know something about what has already been done for you. That you and I sit across the table from Jesus and our debt is not $5,000, it is infinite. And Jesus looks across and he offers the invitation and says, I got this. I got this. We're gonna get it done. Receive this generous gift of eternal life and this expression of love. And knowing that, Knowing the gospel story, right? That though we were dead in our sins, though we are radically sinful, that God in his radical mercy and grace and love sends his son to pay the debt, to forgive us our sins so that we can connect an eternal life with God. We know something that then motivates us to see who we are and what God is doing with us and the love that we could possibly have for Jesus by his power that he begins to work within us. Man, we know something and it is the gospel message preached to ourselves constantly that is the only basis on which we could possibly grow more and more in the kind of love that Paul wants us to see we ought to and should have for Jesus. Guys, it is not about trying a little harder. It is about resting in the reality and the constant reminder day in and day out of just what has been done for you that then pro propels us like those springs on a trampoline to soar higher and higher that it might even become possible for us to love Jesus and love others like that. I'm gonna ask the band to come up and uh, as we think about some of these concepts and this reality, that it's the gospel. It's not about a do more or try harder. It's the gospel message. Just wanna land this a little bit more practically. We might ask the question, okay, that's great theory. That's a great idea. But how does that work out at the water cooler tomorrow? How does that work out in my life? And I would just submit to you this. Uh, this guy, his quote, is, his name is Jerry Bridges. I love this quote. You know what it means? Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Every day, moment by moment, as much as, as much as you can, remind yourself of the great love of God and the sending of his son Jesus for you. Remind, repeat, rinse and repeat day by day. Continue to preach to yourself the gospel because what Paul says elsewhere in a letter that he sends to the church in Rome, he says, guys, it's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation and our transformation. Not the gospel brings about some kind of power that we can access otherwise. No, he says, the gospel, the story of what Jesus has done for us is the power of God for your transformation. Rinse and repeat day after day. Preach the gospel to yourself daily. Well, how do you do that? Well, let, let me just say that you hear this often at the Medina East Campus. We want you, we want this for you. We want you to dive into God's word. We want you to dive into the Bible every single day and interact with God every day in prayer. Why do we, so, why do we throw that on you so much? Is it because simply reading the Bible is gonna magically result in our spiritual transformation and we can love like Jesus loved? No, no. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was interacting with some of the religious leaders of his day, he said, you guys, you search the scriptures, like you comb them with a fine-tooth comb because you think in them you have this thing called eternal life. He's like, no, the scriptures speak about me. You come to me to have life. So it's not as though as for, if we read three Bible verses a day, we get like three credits in the Jesus account. 
That's not it. But what is it? The Bible. God's word is the story. It reminds us constantly of the gospel such that when we immerse ourselves in it more and more, we can experience the power of transformation that is Christ's message of the gospel, of what he did on our behalf. It's why we have this thing, the more and more challenge, that four weeks, right? We've challenged you last week, and if you didn't get into it last week, there's no better time to start. It's literally like this challenge. It's broken up every day, five days a week for five minutes a day. It's broken up into three parts each day. It's Bible, <laughs> It is a question and it is prayer. Why? Not because we just want you to become more biblically literate, but because it's the gospel that we remind ourselves of that motivates us to love like Jesus loved. And in conclusion, I'll just say this. When we ask the question, are we loving Jesus more and more? Maybe it's better said to rework that question this way in light of what we've heard. Maybe the question is this. Am I investing more and more of who I am in the gospel story so that I can experience the power of Jesus to love the things that he loves and live for the things that he lives for more and more? Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful uh, in light of being reminded one more time of the great love that you showed us. God, you are decisive. You are persistent. You are committed. You gave up everything for us, for our good, for our benefit, and ultimately for your glory. God, we are so thankful that you decided to do what you did by sending your son. Jesus, we are also grateful that you were obedient to the Father and you were decisive as well. And you chose to die so that the debt that we racked up in our sin could be forgiven, that we could be set free, and we could experience the quality of eternal life even right here, right now. God, help us, Lord, to not respond to that gracious gift out of a sense of earning or trying to get something from you or trying to make the cut, but to realize that in Jesus, you already dealt with all that and that now you're inviting us into reminding ourselves of that story, which is the power for our transformation, the power for us to be able to love like you loved, that we simply, we're just gonna be honest with you, God, we simply don't have that power without you. So God, help us in whatever context we're in, whatever setting in life that we're in, to remind ourselves, to preach ourselves the gospel daily, to continually expose ourselves to the power of its message and never think that we move beyond it but always stay right in it and plumb its depths so that we could discover again that we can love you radically and then in turn we can love you and love the things that you love more and more. God, as we sing together, as the band plays, help our hearts to be responsive again to the reality of what you've done for us. You've paid this great debt for us and we are grateful. Help us to, to respond to that right now. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.